You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure today to introduce our very special guest. Uh, to some of you, Jeff Hawkins might be a household name. For those who don't know who he is, let me give you a little bit of background. Jeff is the founder of Palm, Palm Computing. In fact, he loves to joke that I still carry around my Palm 5 in my purse. If anyone wants to see a collector's item, I've got it with me. Uh, he also is the founder of Handspring. And that would be enough, right, to found these two really terrific companies. But beyond that, Jeff is also an avid neuroscientist. He has taught himself how the brain works. Can you believe that? And he is basically so talented in this area that he wrote a book called On Intelligence. For How many of you have read the book On Intelligence? It is terrific. I love it. As a neuroscientist myself, I would tell you it is really, really wonderful. And in fact, Jeff now started a new company just a few years ago called Numenta that is building software based on the theories that he proposed in his book on intelligence. So without further ado, I'm going to invite Jeff up here to tell us his story. Oh, okay, thanks. Thanks, thanks Tina. Um, you know, when Tina, a couple months ago, Tina asked if I'd come and give this talk, and I said, did, you know, did I give this talk once before? And she says, no. I said, oh, I thought I did. She said, you gave it twice before. <laughs> and uh, I figured I talked to two times. I had nothing new to say, you know, but uh, you're a new group of people, and I haven't uh, slowed down my career too much. So I have some addendum material we can add on top of things in the past. So um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, before I get into my normal formal remarks, or there's nothing really formal about it, um, you know, I'm going to talk about my career and my experiences as an entrepreneur and some of the lessons I've learned. And, but I have no uh, pretense that, that those lessons necessarily apply to you. Um, you know, entrepreneurs are as different as, as there are many of them. And um, what worked for me and what's important for me may or may not uh, you know, be important for you. So you know, your, uh, your miles may vary. So um, I just want to let you know that because I'll, I'll be talking in certain tunes and, and about things. And, um, and you have to just take from what you can. So what I thought I would do today is um, I want to talk about entrepreneurism and my experiences with it. But I'll do that in the context of my career. Uh, and I will go through the whole thing and tell you along the way some of the stories that, um, that you might find interesting. And then at the end, I will, uh, I'll, I'll sort of sum up with some, uh, some, some sort of lessons learned and, and put them in that context. And we'll have some time for Q&A as well. So let me just start again. I, I graduated from college 30 years ago. This is my 30th uh, anniversary from getting my double E degree at Cornell. And unlike all of you guys, when I went to school, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no aspirations about what I was going to do when I got out of college. I had certainly no desire to be an entrepreneur or design products or be a neuroscientist or anything like that. I really just was going along for the flow, and, and I became a double E because that was, seemed like an easy thing to do, and my father had done it. Um, and then I took my first job at Intel because, well, it's a growing company, and I could get to work in Oregon. And I thought that would be cool. So that was uh, my first job. And three months after graduating uh, from Cornell, uh, a major event happened in my life. And it was basically I read a magazine. I read the September 1979 issue of Scientific American, which is all about the brain. And every story in it was about the brain. And the last story was written by Francis Crick of DNA fame. 
And Francis wrote a story, he said, it's called Thinking About Thinking. He said, well, you've probably read this, this issue of Scientific American, there's all these things about the cell and the neurogenesis and this and this and this. He says, well, let me tell you something. We have all this data, but we have absolutely no idea how the brain works. And, uh, and basically, uh, it, there's, what he said is there is a, no theoretical framework in which to understand these ideas. So, if you know, it's funny, when I was a young kid, if you, if you didn't read that, you wouldn't have noticed that. You would have said, oh, we, we understand how this thing works. And he says, no, we don't understand it at all. And at that moment, I said, well, this is something great. I can work on this. I think I can make progress on this problem. And I decided to dedicate my life to understanding how the brain works. I also realized at the time that if you could figure out how the brain would work, you could build machines that work on the same principles of it. So that got me really excited, too, because then you could have more uh, applications for it, and we could turn it into a technology and so on. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. I have my life plan here. I've been very passionate about this. The first thing I did, what do you think? I'm working at Intel. I write a letter to Gordon Moore. I say, Gordon, Intel makes memory and it makes computers. I think we should study brains so we can figure out how they work. Then we can build computers that work like that. He passed me on to a guy named Ted Hoff, who was one of the early founders at Intel. And Ted was uh, one of the guys who had a long history of neural networks. And I met with Ted Hoff. And he said, you know, I know all about brains and neural networks. He says, you're never going to do this. It's never going to succeed. So don't try. Now, that was a little disappointing. Imagine a 22-year-old kid writing Gordon Moore and then, you know, getting rejected and so on. I'm still working at Intel. So, um, so I said, I'll just try some other things. So I said, well, if I can't do it here, I, I talked to some other companies. They weren't interested. I said, well, I'm living in Boston at the time. And uh, I said, well, I'd switched from Oregon to Boston. And uh, I said, uh, let me go to MIT. So I went, I said, MIT has the AI lab. And they're interested in building intelligent machines. Therefore, they're going to be interested in how brains work because they'll help them how to build intelligent machines. So I went and interviewed there, and I applied to the AI lab as a computer science guy. And they said, um, well, we're not interested in brains. I said, why not? And they said, well, brains are just messy computers, and there's nothing to be learned by studying brains. Um, now, <laughs> some people are snickering, but trust me, this is the prevailing thought back then. And I felt, oh, they're definitely wrong about this. Um, but didn't matter. I didn't get into MIT. So I'm really getting kind of bummed. So I keep working along in the industry here. Um, and I, I said, I have to do, and my career was going well. Actually, I joined a startup company called Grid Systems. I wasn't a founder, but I was, you know, 30th employee or something like that. And Grid invented the laptop computer. So now I'm working on mobile computers and the first laptops. And my career is going very well. I'm doing well. But I said to myself, I got to get back into brains. So I decided to go to graduate school. I said, how am I going to do it? If I can't do it in the computer world, I'll do it in the neuroscience world. You couldn't study theoretical neuroscience, so I got myself into a biophysics program. I became a, a PhD student in biophysics at Berkeley. And I quit my job in the computer industry completely. I said, I'm getting out of the computer industry. Uh, giving up seven years, uh, was, this, this is 1986. I was giving up seven years of, of work in the computer industry, and I said, I'm just going to become a graduate student. And so I did that. And I start off at Berkeley. I'm commuting an hour every day to get there. And, um, I write a paper about what I want to do for my, my PhD thesis. And I, in it, I have some of the ideas that later appeared in Non-Intelligence. And I wrote this paper, and I submitted it to the graduate, uh, chairman of the graduate program in neuroscience at Berkeley. And he had the faculty read it. And we got together, and they said, this is a really good idea. This is a great problem you want to work on. You have some really good ideas on how to do this, but you can't do it. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean I can't do it? He says, not only can't you do it here at Berkeley, you can't do it anywhere. Because what I wanted to do was a, a theoretical mathematical approach to understanding how the neocortex works. That was the specific thing. And they said, there's nobody doing this. And as a graduate student, you just can't do what you want to do. You have to work for a professor. I was naive. I didn't understand this. That you couldn't study whatever you wanted to study. You had to work for somebody to study. And um, I was really bummed out. You've got to imagine how bummed out I was. So I had, this, I had this sort of major soul searching. I said, what am I going to do? I'm, you know, reading, I'm, so I started spending all my time in the library at Berkeley just reading science papers. This is before the internet, of course. If you want to read papers, you've got to go to the library. 
And I had a big bill on my photocopy card, and I was reading all these fine papers. Uh, and I said, look, I've got to do something else here. So I said, well, what I'm going to do, I put a plan in place that I've been playing out now for over 20 years. The plan was I'm going to go back to work in the computer industry, and, uh, and, and I will do four things. Uh, one thing I was going to do is I was going to uh, mature. I was going to learn how to make institutional change. I figure if I'm up against institutional barriers, I have to make institutional change. How do I influence people? How do I get people to change ideas and so on? I'm going to work on that. The second I did, I wanted to make a name for myself. I said, well, you know, I have to be, if, someone, if I, people respect me, they might listen more to me. And the third thing I wanted to do is I wanted to make some money because I needed to afford to be able to be a student again. I was starting to have a family, and I said, in the future, I may have to pay for my own research. I may have to do various things. I don't know what that's going to be. It's going to take some cash. And the last thing I said, well, the neuroscience community would mature. Um, and so that was great. Now, again, I'm not thinking like being an entrepreneur. I'm not thinking this at all. I'm just going to go back into the computer industry. So I went back to my own employer grid. And I came back in sort of an entrepreneurial role. I came back to design a new product, which I proposed to them when I was gone. And uh, I brought some intellectual property with me. So I had a special licensing deal. That was the way I was going to make some extra cash. And I went and created what was the, the first tablet computer. It was called the grid pad. And I, and I learned to build, manage a team of people. And this all went great. It went just on plan. Everything sort of worked out well. I became really well, fairly well known in the computing industry. We talked to a lot of conferences. We introduced this product. It was very exciting. For, you're all too young to know this, or most of you are too young to know this. But there was this huge bubble of uh, pen-based computing back in the, like 1989 and 91. Um, and so uh, I was in the middle of all that. And, and then I said, OK, four years, I'm going to go and go back and do my neuroscience thing. Well, then another problem, unexpected thing happened. And I got another, all these, people, all these people hanging out outside. Do they want to come in? No, they don't want to come in. They just want to stand out there looking through the window. OK. <laughs> That's all right with me. They can hear me, I guess. Is it sound? Yeah, it sounds great out there. They just want a particular view, I guess. Um, so um, so the, something happened. I, I was working on these tablet computers, and then I got this other second bug. It's, you know, I got the neuroscience thing going. And the second one was I realized that in the future that everyone's going to have a, a, a personal computer that fits in their pocket, that that would be the primary computing device for everybody, that you would be accessing a pocket-based computer more often than you'd be accessing anything else, and that this was inevitable, it was going to happen, but I could make it happen sooner, we could do a good job at it, and I got really excited about doing this. And so now I had these two passions. Like I wanted to do the mobile computing thing. And we'd say the future of personal computing was mobile computing, and then I had the neuroscience thing. And I had to decide what to do. So I said to myself, all right, I'll just go do the mobile computing thing for another four years. And I put the neuro I'm still young. I put the neuroscience thing off for a little bit longer. Um, and this is where I ended up starting my first company. Now, uh, I'm, I'm what you would call a reluctant entrepreneur. I have started four, four corporations. Uh, one was a nonprofit. I'm going to tell you about that, too. So Tina mentioned three. But I started four. And each time, I was reluctant to do it. Each time, I really didn't want to do it. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm not being honest about it. Uh, you'll see why. But um, so what happened was I started talking at industry conferences about the future of personal computing being mobile computing and how you can design these small things and what it's going to be like. And you got to imagine it was pretty hard back then because at that time there was no technology to do this. There was no good battery technology. There was no low-powered uh, CPUs. There was no good small displays. There was not even good packaging technology. No one was doing anything with wireless. The internet didn't exist as a consumer phenomenon and nobody had cell phones. To say that we're going to build these you know, mobile computers, that we're going to be doing all these things, we didn't know what they were going to do yet, because people weren't listening to music or watching movies on their computers at that time. Uh, it sounded kind of crazy, but I said, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. So anyway, I was approached by a couple of VCs. And they said, we'd like you to start a company. 
And you think, wow, wouldn't that be great? I said, oh, I don't want to do that. And the reason was because I saw a lot of other people start companies. You know what happened? They work like dogs. They got divorced. They sold their house. You know, this looked like a miserable lifestyle. And I'm not into that kind of lifestyle. You know, I don't work weekends. And I don't work long hours. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to do that. So they said, but well, we'll help you. I said, okay, I'll only do it if you really help me. I'm going to promise, you know, here's what you're going to do and blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm going to hire someone to run the company, but I don't want to do it right away. They didn't believe me, by the way. They thought that I, they thought, my VC thought that I really did want to run the company and that I was just kind of wait, trying to convince them, but I really didn't want to run the company. And, but I said, all right, but it's worth it because it's such a cool idea that we're going to build these mobile computing devices and, uh, and that was going to be great. That's how Palm got started in uh, January of 1992. Um, and now, like, like a lot of startup companies, Palm had its problems. It almost went out of business. Its first products were a complete failure. We, we partnered with Casio and Tandy and some other companies, America Online and so on. It was a total mess. Um, and uh, we had this product called the Zoomer, which came out the same time as the Apple Newton. So we were the second fiddle to the worst product ever. In, you know. <laughs> so, so it was really bad. You know, Casio versus Apple. And Apple fails, Casio's not going to do anything. So, um, so that's our situation. But you know what? We had $3 million in the bank. We had 27 employees. Our investors, all except for one, all investors said, this is a failure, we're getting out of this. But we had $3 million left. We couldn't raise any more money. So we said, OK, what are we going to do? And we said, let's keep going off. To, we're passionate about mobile computing. Let's do it. Let's try to figure it out. So we went back, and we, we interviewed all our customers who bought the Newton and bought the Zoomers and so on. We said, what did you want this thing to do? And they, and they said, well, I wanted to be a paper like my organizer, but you know, synchronized with my assistant and so on. So we listened to these people, and we said, OK, we're up against paper. We're not up against computers. We're going to make an electronic organizer. That's a hands-on computer. And that was the, what became the Palm Pilot. We developed the product at $3 million. We could not, didn't have enough money to bring it to market. There's no way in the world that anyone would fund us, even though we were on the verge of having one of the most successful consumer products of all time. So we actually sold the company for $44 million, which some people thought was like, miraculous. How did you get that amount of money for a failed company? Other people in hindsight said, oh my god, you gave the company away. But anyway, we sold it to uh, US Robotics. And, but all, the entire team stayed on, because we were still passionate about this, this mission of mobile computing. So there we were. The company went through a series of acquisitions. It was now being owned by uh, 3Com. 3Com was mismanaging it. Now, guess now, one thing I should tell you, when I started Palm, it was in my employment contract that after four years, I could go do neuroscience. <laughs> it's there. I have this book at home. You know, when, you, when, you, when you do a founding of a company, they give you these books, all that you'll see if you ever found a company, a book with all the documents in it. Mine says, I can work on neuroscience. Um, so four years, we were into it. The Palm, Palm was being very successful. I was now working part-time at 3Com slash POM, doing my neuroscience. And then we were having these sort of management difficulties with uh, the senior managers at 3Com. And one day, my business partner, oh, I forgot to mention, I did hire the CEO. Her name was Donna Davinsky. And, um, and I hired her six months after we started POM. And so I, I've been working with her for many years. Anyway, so one day, Donna walks into my office and says, Jeff, we just resigned. And I said, what do you mean we just resigned? She says, we just resigned. She says, the two of us? Says, yes. So now I was really mad at her for resigning for me. Um, <laughs> But, but you might not realize why. It took me a while to realize it. Because the reason we, we resigned, or she resigned, the reason I was mad is because we basically felt that Palm was going to fail under 3Com. It was going to be driven out into non-existence. And then we didn't want that to happen. So we were trying to argue that they spin the company out. They argued, we'll never spin the company out. This is Eric Benamo. I will never spin this company out of, of, of 3Com. And we said, well, you're going to kill it then. Therefore, we have to leave. And uh, we'll have to start a new company. So we basically resigned to start a new company, which was Handspring. Well, guess what? When you start a new company, you can't work part-time anymore. 
So my neuroscience dreams were like fading away from me. Well, the moment Donna walked in my office and said, you just resigned, I'm like, what do you mean? No. Um, so I said, oh my god, we have to do another four years, right? So okay, I'll do it for, you know, actually we agreed that I would work for full time for two years, and then I'd be able to start working part time again. And that's what happened. And then uh, at Handspring, we designed the Trio smartphones, and then both Palm and Handspring had their successes and their failures. They both, you know, eventually, they both went public. Uh, Eric Benemow did spin out Palm eventually. And uh, so I had two companies go public, and then they, then they went in the hard times, and then they merged together again, and Palm is, I don't work at Palm anymore, but it's, um, uh, they, they are, you know, they're still in business, and they're, now they've got some great new products they're coming out with. Now, what happened was, eventually, I got to do my neuroscience thing. And uh, about seven or eight years ago, um, I said, okay, I'm really going to go do this now. I said, what am I going to do? And I have a bunch of neuroscience friends. I don't just like work in a closet someplace. I'm, I'm known in the neuroscience community. And, um, and so I had some neuroscience friends, and they said, Jeff, if you really want to work on neocortical theory, there's only one way you're going to do it. He says, you can't do it at any of these institutions. It's not going to work. You can't give money to people because they won't do what you think you're going to do with them. So you've got to do start a, an institute that just focuses on neocortical theory. Now imagine this, you know, a guy with a bachelor's degree in double E, you know, putting up a shingle saying, Jeff's Neuroscience Institute, come on and come on. Who's going to work there, right? I mean, this is a crazy idea. I said, who's, who's going to work at this institute? I said, I said, I'll only do it if you help me. I said, you've got you to be on the board, and you're going to help me, and you're going to bring people here, and you're going to help craft this thing. And they said, all right, we'll do that. And I said, all right. Now let me tell you, starting a nonprofit is just as much work as starting a for-profit business. You've got all the same issues. You got, you got money issues, you got building issues, you got people issues, you got missions issues, you got all the same kind of stuff going on. But what we did is we started the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, which was a very unusual institute. Um, it was a single task institute focused on neocortical theory. We had 10 people working there. I ran it for three years. 10 people working there, and in those three years, we had 120 visitors from around the world. It got to be a hot place. It got to be the point where neuroscientists around the world were saying to me, how come I haven't been invited yet to, the, to R&I? And, it, and we actually had a lot of success there. Um, it was a very unusual uh, way we ran it, but I ran it sort of a combination of corporate and, and science. So the scientists could do whatever they want, but I put some sort of structure around it where uh, we ha everyone had to go to a journal club and everyone had to do this, and we, we picked topics to study collectively and so on. Anyway, we worked on neocortical theory. We made a lot of progress on that. And, um, and what happened was eventually we, we had so much progress, I had to decide what to do next. All right? So we, we started. And what happened was um, a friend of mine, uh, who was, was my colleague, Dilip George, who was, a, uh, he was at the time a graduate student at Stanford, um, he was hanging out at R&I, and uh, he, he basically was following these theories and read an early copy of my book. And, we, uh, and he basically figured out how to take these theories, these biological theories, and turn them into a mathematical formulation and show that we can make it into software. And so Dilip would basically, and I've been talking about this for so many years, and he's showing me how to do it. I said, all right, Dilip, what do you want to do? And he says, yes, I'd like to start a company on this. I'm like, oh, great, another company. And um, I said, it's a lot of work starting a company. You sure you want to do that? He said, yeah. And I said, ah. Now, at this point, I couldn't back out because I've been talking about this for 25 years. And I said, we're going to do this, and now we're, we're doing it. I can't say no. And I really did want to do it. Um, but you know, but it's, not, it's not like, oh, wonderful, let's go start another company. It's like, oh, that's a lot of work. So, um, but we started the Menta four years ago, and that's what we've been doing. So those, uh, and we're having success there. It's, we're still in the development phase, but we have a lot of interest, and it's very cool stuff we're building, and I can talk about it in the Q&A if you want to ask me questions about it later. So those are the four things that I've worked on. Um, uh, you know, those Palm, the four things I started, Palm, and then Handspring, uh, then the Redwood Neuroscience Institute. By the way, uh, that was a successful start, too, because, you know, it had sort of the equivalent of an acquisition. 
um, I had to do something with the Institute after we had sort of success with the theories. And I didn't want to run it anymore. Let me tell you, it's really miserable managing a whole bunch of scientists. Um, for me, at least. I, it's not my thing. And, um, and that, by the way, I didn't have someone running it. It was me running it. Uh, at Palm and Handspring, I always had Donna being the CEO and Ed being the VP of marketing and so on. So uh, what am I going to do with R&I, the Redwood Neuroscience Institute? So we, we basically, we, we had a great association with Berkeley, so we moved it to Berkeley. We sort of, it was acquired by Berkeley in some sense. And so it continues now on the Berkeley campus. Uh, you may say, why didn't I do it at Stanford? Does anyone think about that? Because we were right around the corner here. Turns out that it was very difficult to work with Stanford. This is off topic here, but... Um, <laughs> um, Berkeley and Stanford are very different in the way they handle this kind of thing. At Stanford, the individual PIs, and we have a lot of, I have a lot of friends who, who are scientists here at Stanford, uh, they, they work independently. They, it's called Pillars of Excellence. At Berkeley, there's, they're managed as a group. There's a Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute, which is run by someone called Bob Knight. So as an institution, I can have an institutional relationship with Berkeley, but I couldn't have an institutional relationship with Stanford. And I talked to the provost here and so on, and it just didn't work out. So it was no way for it to really sort of establish that sort of uh, institutional sort of give and take which we had with Berkeley. So we moved the whole institute to Berkeley and it continues on there. All right, so those are, that's kind of um, uh, you know, the, the, the major phases in my life. Um, and we're now still doing the Namantha thing. And I actually actually got a fifth thing I'm starting recently, which I really regret having a fifth thing, but it's so exciting. I'll tell you about it in a little bit. Um, I thought I would, I would just now sort of turn this into some sort of the lessons that I've learned here. Is that right, Tina? Am I doing all right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I even wrote some of them down so I don't forget, you know. But uh, it's, it's the random recall, which is hard. Uh, the first thing is, you know, let me just talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur. It means things, different things to different people. I actually like the, the, the definition Tina had in her book, which is, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but it's something along the lines of an entrepreneur is someone who looks and finds problems and then looks for creative solutions and creative ways of solving that problem. Uh, the everyday vernacular of entrepreneur is something different. Everyday vernacular entrepreneurs say, I'm an entrepreneur. People say, oh, you've started a company, which is not the same thing. Um, and... And if you say you're like a serial entrepreneur, which sounds to me like you know, some sort of criminal or something, you know, you, 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 know, you started multiple companies. I, I don't think there's a badge of courage, by the way. If, if someone calls me a serial entrepreneur, I kind of feel like cringing about it. It's like, what? I couldn't get it right the first time. I have to keep trying over and over again. But I have a good excuse. It's like changing jobs. I have a good excuse to, I went through here why I started these different things. And um, you know, it wouldn't have been my brothers to do it that way. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so I, my definition is a little bit similar to Tina's. Basically, what I did was I said, if you find something you're passionate about, and this is what it's all in my life, you find something you're passionate about, and I've had these two passions. One is the neuroscience, and one is the mobile computing thing. And um, then an entrepreneur is someone who follows that passion no matter where it goes, no matter where it takes you. Uh, in my case, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily, oh, start a company. It was like whatever I had to do. If I had to go to graduate school, I had to go to graduate school. If I had to sell my company at Palm, we, we sold our company for, you know, for $44 million um, so that we could finish launching our product. And that was success. It wasn't like we had to go you know, keep it um, independent or anything like that. Um, you have to make, give up ownership of things. You have to be able to do whatever it takes. Uh, and, that's, and to me, that's what it is. You, you have a passion and you follow wherever it takes you. And my passion, you know, my neuroscience passion has taken me 30 years. And I'm still at it, and I hope I, you know, we're going to get to the end of it soon here. But, um, but you know, wherever it takes you, and that's 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 to me what what entrepreneurism is. And and you can, you can. Part of it may be starting a company. Part of it may be going back to your old company. Part of it may be doing something else. But it's not just like starting a business. I know a lot of people who sit around and they say, okay, we're going to start a business. I, I've seen this over and over again. I said, what do you what are you passionate about? What are you going to work on? Oh no, we'll figure it out. We got the team. We're going to figure it out. Well, some people succeed at that, but a lot of people don't. Because what will happen is when you, when you create a new company, 
Let me tell you, you know, bad things happen. It always does. Always, always something, you know, you'll have crises. And if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you just won't have the stick to to get through those bad things. I mean, it's really, it sounds fun in hindsight. You say, oh, this is successful. But let me tell you, the, the moment you're doing these things, it's miserable. All kinds of crises occur, all kinds of problems. Everything looks like it's falling apart. This is all, successful companies all go through this, trust me. Um, and you better really care about what you're doing. You have to really, you have to be able to impassionately get up in front of your employees and say, please don't leave me. Here's why we're going to succeed. And, you know, we're going to get through this crisis and blah, blah, blah. So it really takes that kind of passion in my mind. And if you don't really have that, then when the crisis has happened, you're just not going to, you're not going to do it. Another thing is, I think there's a, um, this is a little personal pet peeve of mine. It took me a while to understand this myself. Um, there's a belief that uh, being an entrepreneur requires this superhuman effort. You know, super long hours. You know, people say, oh, you must work really long hours. And I say, well, no, I really don't work really long hours. I don't like working long hours. I mean, I work, I think, all the time. It's not like I play games and stuff, but I, I don't like sitting in an office and I don't like traveling. And, and throughout the years that I, um, I, all my years that I've worked, um, I had this rule. I'd be home for breakfast and dinner with my kids every day. And I would try to minimize the amount of travel. Now, not everyone can do that, um, but I was in a situation I could. And I used to worry about it. And, um, and one day, Donna Dubinsky sent to me, I said, I said, Donna, I really feel bad. The engineers are here all night long trying to get this release out the door, and I'm going home at, you know, 6, six o'clock. And she says, you know, Jeff, don't worry about it. He says, you know, everyone makes their own choices. Everyone has their own point in their time in their life. This is what they want to do. This is what you want to do right now. And, just, you know, and, and you can be effective without having to work hard. And, and, and part of that lesson is that success is not necessarily just about working hard. It's about making the right choices, the right decisions. I like to say that any company in the world, the local Starbucks, the local vacuum cleaner store, could be the largest company in the world if every day they make a, a better decision than their competitor. If one decision that's better than a competitor every single day. Look at Nokia, the largest cell phone manufacturer in the world. You know what they made for 80 years? They made rubber boots. Now, how did the rubber boot company become, you know, the largest telecommunications company in the world? Well, one of the largest. Um, well, I guarantee you somebody there was smart and made a better decision every day. They didn't do it by just making rubber boots faster, you know, and harder. They, they made smart decisions. And so anybody, any company, be turned into any size if you just can continually make better decisions. And that's, the, that's really the key to success. When you're confronted with problems, you have to make a decision about how you're going to solve that problem, which path do you take. And making the right decision is the answer, not necessarily working really, really hard. The third thing, and I've already alerted, alluded to this a bit here, is you really need to, um, well, in my case, I, I, I found it very, very helpful to get support from people. Involve people in your problems. So many entrepreneurs sit down and say, okay, I got this idea, I'm going to keep it secret, right? I can't tell how many people come to me and they say like, oh, I want your advice, Jeff, you're a successful entrepreneur, I want your advice, but I need you to sign an NDA, or I can't tell you what the product is. Well, I said, what are you crazy? I said, you should be telling everybody in the world. You should be telling everybody what you're doing. You're trying to get anybody to listen to you, you should be happy about that. Um, my favorite story, and I'll probably get in trouble saying this on tape, but anyway, um, a good friend of mine is Dean Kamen, brilliant guy. And really amazing guy. I don't know if you know him. He's uh, an incredible inventor, and he, he was the guy who, who invented the wheelchair and this, this uh, infusion device for diabetics, and, and, uh, and he also did, did the Segway. Well, before the Segway came out, Dean called me up and he said, Jeff, I want to come talk to you about a new product. So he brought this whole team from this new company, which was unnamed, which turned out to be Segway. And they showed up in my office one day, like eight of them. And they said, OK, Jeff, we're going to grill you about how you introduce a consumer product. I said, OK, what's the product? Can't tell you. <laughs> I said, well, what category is it? We can't tell you. 
I said, can you show me anything about this product? No, we can't tell you anything about the product, but we want to know keys to success. I'm like, well, you know, they said it's going to be expensive. Oh, great. You know, that's really helpful. So, so, so you know, I couldn't really give them any advice. If they, did, if they just told me, hey, look, it's a two-wheeled thing like this, I could have a whole bunch of ideas. I would have said, you know what, you're going to have trouble here, you're going to have trouble here, this is what I do here, this is what I do this. You know, I have all these great ideas. I, as soon as I saw it, I said, Dan, you should have told me this. You know, but, you know, people get wrapped up in secrecy. And now when people write to me and they say, well, I have these great ideas, you know, sign my NDA. I said, you don't, I'm not going to sign your NDA. You're lucky if I look at your business plan, you know, please ask nicely, and I'll, and I'll give you my advice. But you should, you know, don't be secret about it. You want to involve as many people as possible. Now, there's some exceptions to that, of course. If you're getting close to launch and you have a particular product, you can't say what it is. But in general, in the beginning, you want to enlist people. The other thing is you want to get as many people helping you as possible. I already mentioned the VCs. When I started working at VCs, I said, you guys are on my team. You're gonna, I need to be able to call you every day. I want you to answer my call every day. I want you to come down here when we got problems. And, um, and they did that. And so many entrepreneurs think like, oh, it's me versus the VCs. I better not tell them this. I better not tell them that. What you, what you really want to do is you want them to put as much money into your company. You want them to moan as, as much as possible so that they are worrying more than you. Because you want them sitting there, oh my god, we're going to lose this whole thing. It's going to fail. I can't let that happen. I've got to work on it. You know, if they don't know what's going on, if they don't have enough money into you, they'll oh, screw it, write it off, you know. Um, so you really want to involve them in it. And again, also involve other people on the team. I, I've been very uh, uh, lucky to have great people supporting me uh, and working with. So, you know, I've worked with Donna Davinsky at all my uh, things I've created. She was even on the board at R&I. And she's now a volunteer part-time CEO at Nementa, which is a wonderful thing for her to do. Um, but uh, I've had, you know, always spread the pain. One of the things I learned early on, if you're, if you're uh, an entrepreneur and you start a company, um, the, your investors only have one thing they can do. Do you know what that one thing is? They can fire the CEO. That's the only thing they can do. That's their only point of control. So why do you want to be the CEO? Let someone else be the CEO. As soon as, <laughs> as, soon as they hire a CEO, they can't fire the, you know, the technical founder guy. They can fire you, the CEO, but if you're not, they're not going to fire you. They're going to fire the CEO. So you, you know, all, kinds of, you know, all kinds of burdens are lifted off your shoulder at that moment. You're like, oh, great. I can relax. You know? They're not going to get rid of me. That's, and that's not a joke. That's really true. Um, <laughs> and uh, so think about it that way. So, uh, so really, you want to, you want to, you, you know, don't be secret. Get people involved. Get as many people. You know, people worry about too much about ownership too. And you know, like, oh, I, I, how many times I've heard, I, I don't want to give up more than, I don't want to give up control of the company. You know, I want fifty-one percent. I'm like, what do you care? If you want fifty-one percent? You know, fifty-one percent of nothing is a lot less than you know twenty percent of, of something. And, and another thing I've learned is that as much as you think that at any point in time, like this is, this is the stock option that's really going to make me wealthier or whatever, it's always the next one or the next one or the next company or the next thing that makes you wealthier. It's always more later on. So just worry about your passions, worry about being successful if that is, and all kinds of good things will happen. If you sit around worrying about ownership and control and all this stuff, you're just not going to have a good time, you won't be very successful. And, um, and it, it just, this whole idea of just following your passion gives you guidance at any point in time as to what to do next when you're doing those things. Okay, I took a little bit less time than I was supposed to take. Um, I'm looking at Tina like, don't get mad at me. So, um, and uh, and I'll be, I'm going to answer questions now and from students. If any students, if you have any questions, I'd be glad to do that. Um, and don't be bashful. I'll call on you. Yes? Um, so, at one point, uh, so in, in product introductions, there's, yeah. there's sometimes you have a vision for a product, and then there's a lot of maybe naysayers and people who are opponents of it. Yeah. Um, and one product recently that I saw from Palm was the Folio. Yes. And I felt like that was a precursor to the netbook revolution that's sort of going on right now. Yes. And I feel like, sort of in retrospect, that 
comment about that? I will repeat the question. I will repeat the question. So the question has to do with a product that was I was recently involved with. The last product I was recently involved with was called a folio, which was announced by Palm but never shipped by Palm. And the observation was it might have been like a precursor to the, to the netbooks. And so that was a, the, the folio. For, for those of you who don't know what it is, it, it was a um, it's still, it still ne was never launched, but um, it's a small. It's like a netbook. It's a small computer that is solid state. It's always on. And uh, it was very simple to use, and it synchronized with cell phones automatically and email and things like this. Um, this is a product I conceived of many years ago. Uh, and I still, to this day, think it is the best product concept I ever had. And, and it was too far out there at the time I thought about it. When I thought about it, I said, this product will make sense when everybody has a smartphone and, um, and people do in, in some future world. But it wasn't there yet. And so I said, I just put it on the shelf for a long, long period of time. And finally, when, when, um, um, when Palm and Hanspring merged back together again, I got them to agree that we're going to do the folio. I said, look, this, it's a good time for it. It's going to be a great product. Now, there was a couple of things that, that, uh, that got in the way of the folio. One was that I was no longer working at Palm full time. I was only there like a day a week. I was doing R&I. And so I was trying to sort of like instill, inspire the team to build this thing without being there day to day. And I didn't know how well that would work. Well, it didn't work as well as it should have. So the product was very, it had delays, and, and it really I didn't have the right sort of driver person behind it all the time, and I couldn't play that role. The other thing that got in the way of the folio is that uh, Palm started having financial problems and difficulties, and then they did this sort of uh, semi, um, they, they raised a whole bunch of money through Elevation Partners, so it was a semi-leveraged uh, buyout type of thing. And, and they brought a whole new team of people in, and they put a different product strategy. That was happening just at the time we were launching the folio. And so we had to choose, like, are we going to launch this or not launch it? We may be changing directions, but we don't know yet, so we can't really delay it, and so on. So that's why it was announced, but then it was never shipped, because the new team came in and said they didn't want to do that. Uh, now, in hindsight, you could say, hey, it was just like the netbooks. And maybe it's a good piece of the good netbooks. Probably is, although I can tell you what's wrong with the netbooks and what folio got right. But... Um, at the time, very, very few people thought this was a good idea. Very, very few people inside of even Palm thought it was a good idea. And, you know, and when I, when I, it was very interesting. We announced at this conference called D. And all the industry pundits there said, this is the stupidest thing in the world. Some of the people called it like Hawkins Folly. But, you know, the people who weren't the pundits, there was a whole bunch of people who were just like users of computers. They loved it. They said, this is what I want. I said, I'm so tired of these big, confusing computers. The batteries don't last and it's hard to use. Oh, you know, blech. They said, I'm just want something simple that does email and web browsing, and you know that's all I need. Writing email, web browsing, writing maybe cables and presentation. That's what I want to travel. People travel, and um, and so there was a whole undercurrent of people who were not the technorati who loved the idea, but the technorati people were like, well, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have this, it doesn't have this, you know, it's not wireless 16D7, whatever, you know, and. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit, it was very sad for me that we never actually launched that product, actually shipped it. Uh, and I think if, under different circumstances, that would be a hugely successful product now for them. Um, but it's different circumstances, and we can't worry about it, and it's behind us. And, and I'm happy to see that the netbooks are sort of coming on. And I think, I think the idea of simple, small, low-cost, easy-to-use computing is a good idea. And uh, I have a Dell laptop, and it's, you know, it's unbelievably complex. I'm, I don't know if you guys have problems. Even the Macs are like this, let me tell you. They, you know, they're just so complex. It's just not a product for the world. And you need simple computing devices. So that's where the mobile stuff is uh, really coming to play. Anyway, it's an interesting question. And uh, it's it the, the best product idea I ever had that never actually got shipped, unfortunately. Yeah? Uh, 
We heard a lot about the successes that you have achieved so far, but can you tell a little bit about the mistakes you made in the first half of your career? I just talk about my successes. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about all my failures. Sure, you want me to talk about my failures, right? Didn't I mention the Palm almost went out of business? <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. That's, you know, I've, I've probably designed like a dozen computing products, and I would say two are really successful, and maybe you know, uh, six were mar mar reasonably successful, and there was a bunch of duds. I'll tell you my first failure. My first failure product was interesting. I was at Grid. We had done the tablet computer, right, which was you know, a, a stylus pace, and we were selling it to commercial like people, insurance adjusters, and things like that. And then Microsoft decided that this was a new area, and they created Windows for pen computing. You know, they, whenever the Microsoft saw a new area, they just would say Windows for that area, and that would be it. <laughs> and they still do that to this day. I don't know if you notice that. Um, so, so they were creating all this kind of fud and you know, fear and certainty doubt and all this kind of noise. And so I had this idea. I said, look, I have a great idea. I'll create, I'll create a convertible notebook uh, type. It was, it was a laptop. It was like a convertible laptop, which is what we see today. It was, it was the very first one. It was actually a very nice design. It was called the um, Grid Convertible, actually. And it came out in like 1990 or 1990, maybe, something like that, 81. Um, and it had this display. It was like a laptop where the display kind of was facing up. And then it would fold. It had this like double hinge. It was really cool action. And it had a keyboard. And so you could use the size with the keyboard. And so it was a regular laptop plus a tablet computer. So we could sell it to our tablet customers, and they wouldn't have to worry about Microsoft and all this kind of stuff. Well, it was a well-executed product. It was beautiful design. And uh, I thought it was a great idea. Um, and it was a failure. And the, the reason we, we learned it was a failure um, uh, it had to do with the fact that in the laptop market, people didn't want any compromises. And so they basically, when you pick a laptop, some people say, I want it thin, I want this, I want this, or this, or this. And we were offering just one product, and it didn't fit for everybody, and it was a little bit thicker, and, and just, they just didn't want that combination. So now it's interesting. So years later, uh, when Microsoft, apparently Bill Gates, got so excited about doing these tablet computers, I'm saying to myself, this is never going to be a big business, you know? And because and, and, I knew inherently it isn't. Now, they, they did introduce them and they've sold a bunch, but they haven't really taken off. I mean, the tablet, the, the convertible laptops have not been a big market. Just an incredible amount of money and effort put into it, but very few people have one. Does anyone in the room have here one? A convertible laptop? No. Um, so when they, when they made this launch, of the Microsoft made the launch, a whole new you know, convertible stuff a few years ago, I said, this is going to fail. I, I've been there. I've done that. Um, the, uh, I'll give you other failures. The Zoomer I mentioned was the first product at Palm was a failure. Uh, we, the first product we did at, um, at, at Handspring was the interesting failure and success. Uh, two failures and success, I'll tell you why. This was the, the Handspring Visor. <coughs> and the Visor was a low-end, fun, colorful PDA. And it had, a nice, it had this feature called an expansion slot in the back called the Springboard Expansion Slot. So you could plug in radios and all kinds of cool widgets you plug into the thing. So um, the, the Visor was a huge success. We sold millions right off the chute. We had two failures with it. The first failure is that we were a pioneer in online retailing. We said, we're going to do this online retailing stuff, right? So we created an online retailing website. And, uh, and we you know, designed the whole thing. And we got a gazillion orders uh, literally the day, first day. I mean, we announced this visor, and we were taking in th tens of thousands an hour of orders. Um, now, the system kept up with it, but the system got confused, and it mixed up all the orders. And we started shipping wrong products to people. We, we, people who paid us, we didn't ship many products. People who bought one product, they'd get three. And um, this was a disaster. It was a, a total disaster. You know, I, I could use some less kind words on it, but we'll just leave it that way, right? 
And so what do you do, right? Launching your company, launching your product, everything is falling apart. You've got customers who paid you money are getting charged over and over. You haven't got any product. If people get a wrong product, I mean, you know, people, thank you for sending me three. I only wanted one, you know. So what, and we, we, we just, we just, what we did is we took everybody in the company, including myself, everybody, and we took a list of everybody who ever bought a product, who, who ordered, and we called up everyone individually. We said, did you get the product you wanted? And they said, uh, they said, no, I got three. I said, you happy? He said, yes, keep them. I said, the next person, did you get the product you wanted? No, I'm furious. I haven't gotten any. Yet. I said, what would you want? I said, I'm going to send it to you tomorrow. You know? And we did that for every single customer and call them every one. And we got through that. Uh, that was a big mistake. And then the, uh, the other thing was the, uh, I mean, when, we start, when you start a company, I mentioned earlier, you always have like, you know, crap hits the fan. I, when we started Handspring, I said, something's going to happen. I know it. Something's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen, you know. And we didn't anticipate that was it, but that was it. We said, all right, something happened. Um, then uh, the other thing that was interesting failure about the, the, the visor was this Springboard expansion slot. Actually, we, we promoted it. We got people to build all these, these things to plug in. It was very cool. We had people building pedometers and various types of radios and pagers and so on. It was very successful. All these companies built these Springboard expansion modules. However, they didn't sell any. People just didn't want to buy the expansion models. They just bought the visor, and they just they liked the idea. People liked the idea of expansions. Oh, I really like the expansion slot. And we said, "Did you buy any expansion slot?" No. I like the idea. So, <laughs> so that was a failure. And, and we had to some point sit back and say, "We're going to abandon that," even though we promoted it as this big thing. You know, we had to say, "Oh, give up on that." You know. So that was a, a bit difficulty. Um, so there's always this kind of stuff going on all the time. Um, I can give you more failures if you want to hear more failures. But but you know, I would say you know if you're batting. If you're batting 300, you're doing great, you know, on product design stuff. You know that if you're, if every third product is a success or something like that. Yeah, uh, I'll take this guy here. Can you tell us a little more about the Menta projects? Yeah, can I talk a little more about the Menta? Sure, I love to talk about the Menta. Um, I, now that you've given me the excuse to talk about the Menta. So again, what the Menta is based on, we have this theory about how the neocortex works. And, and by the way, it's, it, the theory is getting a lot of good play in the neuroscience community. So it's not like this just making this stuff up. Um, and uh, and I, you know, there's, it's, it's pretty legit. And, and we're, it's pretty clear that this is how the neocortex basically works. And it's, I won't go into the details of that, but it has to do with there's a memory system. It's hierarchical and uses time. So now, what does the brain do? You know, when you were born, uh, you don't know anything about the world. You don't know about Stanford, you don't know about books, you don't know about tables, you don't know about chairs, you don't know about cars, you don't know about computers, you don't know about entrepreneurs, you don't know a language. Your brain is, it has a few things in it, but mostly it's empty. And you have to build a knowledge base about the world. You have to build, an, in fact, a, a model of the world. So when you, from the day you're born, you through your senses start building this model of the world. And the model includes what things are out there, how they interact, and so on. Well, it turns out the way the brain, the neocortex, builds this model through vision and hearing and touch, it's all the same. This turns out there's a common algorithm underlying most of the high-level senses that, uh, and how they're represented in the neocortex. So that's why you can learn a language through vision, like sign language. You can learn it through auditory. You can learn it through written. Um, and um, it's just basically the same algorithm going on. Well, we kind of figured out what this algorithm is. We know how to do it. And so what can you do with this? So we're writing software to emulate this memory algorithm, this hierarchical memory algorithm. And you can apply it to different, all kinds of problems. Any problem where you have a lot of sensory data and you're trying to build a model, and then you can do inference on the model, meaning you can do pattern recognition. 
So uh, we have all kinds of customers who are trying all kinds of things. We're starting to work with a bank who's looking for how do we detect patterns of fraud, fraud detection in, in bank transactions. We're working with several, two car companies. Um, one is to, uh, trying to do a better uh, visual sensor, trying to detect, they have a, there's a law in Germany, they have to detect children, uh, independent of people, uh, adults and so on. They have to have a camera that can actually tell, is this a child or is this a bicycle or something like that. We can do that. We have another car company that's, um, that's interested in putting an array of sensors around the car to model traffic around the car. Um, so it'd build like a, a, a sensory array of uh, LIDAR, laser radar, and, and do that kind of thing. We have um, people doing uh, medical imaging. Um, it, it's all over the map. But all of them have lots of data. They don't know how to process the data. that they want to do is they want to build a model underlying the data, whether it's a visual model or a bank model, and they want to do inference. Like, here's a new pattern. Can you tell me what's going to happen here? People doing uh, network analysis, power networks, and uh, internet, things like that. So we're trying to turn, we're basically, uh, Palm used to say we're the future of mobile computing, the future of personal computing is mobile computing, and that no matter that we say the future of computing is the hierarchical temporal memory. It's a whole new way of thinking about information processing. It's the way brains do it, and I am convinced that it, given enough time, it will be as big as the computer, uh, the field of Turing-based computers is today. Uh, it's a really fundamental idea that nature has discovered. And uh, we're just trying to build the very first computers. It's like we're building the ENIACs of, of HTMs or something like that. Uh, and it's very cool. And if you're interested, uh, we have internships available. We're, we're, we just moved to Redwood City. Um, and we also, I don't know if we have any more openings, but it's, it, we have a workshop in June 25th you can come to. One day workshop, it's cheap if you're a student, um, down in San Jose. And we have, we're introducing a vision kit and all these other things we're doing there. So it's a very cool technology. And our website has a lot of information. Everything is up there. You can look at it all. So that's Numenta. Yes? You said you were starting a fifth thing. Oh, yeah, fifth thing. Well, I thought, you know, it's not, it's interesting. So I, I got a new idea, right? I've been puzzling on, on this idea for years. And I just got to the point, I have to do it. Um, and I'm, I always, again, I always kind of regret it. Like, oh, God, why do I think of these things? Um, because it's a lot of work. The, um, this idea is a combination of my handheld computing and neuroscience. It has to, it's an offshoot of something called um, uh, sensory substitution, uh, and which is the idea that you can learn to perceive things through different sort of substitution sensors. Like they, they came, one guy, got, a scientist, Baki Rita, came up with this little camera, and he put it on a blind person, and then he put a little array, a grid array on his tongue. And, and it, it innovated the picture from the camera, innovated the array on the tongue. And the person who, would, who had the camera on the head Feel, initially feels this on their tongue, but eventually they start perceiving at a distance. They start perceiving like it's an image. Um, and so that's the idea of sensory substitution. So um, I, figured, I figured a way of doing a very practical device for blind people. And it has to do with uh, a handheld thing you hold, you hold in your hand, it uses a 3D camera, and essentially can detect the distances to edges. And it transmits those edges, the distances to your underside of your fingers. And so if, in, instead of using a white cane, you can just sweep this thing across the floor and you can very quickly determine that there's an edge out there or there's a discontinuity. And then by turning your hand sideways, you can tell exactly where it is. And so you, could just, you start to feel at a distance through your hand. And it's got a whole bunch of offshoots to it, but the idea you could create this thing. And I think it would be, a, if you go look at the, what people, blind people do to navigate, it's very poor. They have very poor tools for this. They don't really, they, they have the cane, they have dogs. That's pretty much it, and people. Um, and I think you could create a very rich sensory experience for blind people. Um, and so uh, we're trying to start this. Now the question, how do I do it? I've, I've said I'm not going to start a company. That's it. Done. So uh, we're trying alternate approaches. I'm working with the design from IDEO. Uh, Dennis Boyle is a friend of Tina's and uh, David Kelly was, was one of the, the founder of the D-School here. Um, 
And uh, we're, we're looking at trying to do this as a non, in a sort of a, a nonprofit open source way, an open source hardware and software, so we're going to design this up to a certain point. And then we might do some sort of competitions for, for people to come up with business plans on how to bring it to, to market or how to improve it and so on. We really haven't figured it out yet. If you want to work on it, great, let me know. Um, we're, we're willing to fund it, and we just, we just want to have it happen. I mean, that's the goal. You just, we want to have it happen. We want to build this thing. We want to get it out there. And uh, it would be just real cool to do it. So that's my, but I'm not going to start a business. I, at least I can say that now. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to stick to younger-looking people first, if that's OK. Just one me back here. I'm sorry. You're young, too, so I'll come back in. Um, I was wondering how you got involved with the in the first place for the palm. And also, how did that influence the product? I have a funny story. The question was, how did I get involved with IDEO for the Palm? And then, how did that influence the product? Well, let me tell you a funny story about this. So Ed Colligan, who is, the, who is now the president of Palm and was the VP of marketing early on at Palm, we were starting to work on the Palm pilot. You know, we, the Zoomer was a failure. We're starting to work on the Palm pilot. And we said, we had $3 million and 27 people, right? And all those people were software people except me. I was the only guy with any hard work background. And so, we said, Ed, I said, we have to build a physical piece of hardware. We need an industrial designer. He said, oh, yeah, the guys at IDEO are too expensive. So Ed takes the yellow pages. You guys know what the yellow pages are? He takes the yellow pages, and he opens up the industrial design firms. And he says, Palo Alto Design. There, I'll call him up. So he calls up this company called Palo Alto Design. There's these two guys, Malcolm Smith and another guy that are in Palo Alto. And they're like this kind of like, um, well, at the time, they were, I don't want to say this in a derogatory sense. It was, well, it wasn't the high-end shop, okay? Let's put it that way, you know? <laughs> you know, two guys, Luigi, and, oh, yeah, we'll build something for you. And uh, so we started, we originally did the design of Palo Alto Design Group, really on the cheap. I mean, we paid them in stock, and, you know, it's like, you know, we have no money. You would design this for us, you know? <laughs> and they did. Um, now, when we came around to doing the Palm 5, and this is a very interesting story. So we had done the Palm Pilot, then the Palm 3, and we were, we were being very successful. And Microsoft decided that they were going to kill us. Right? They had, they, they literally, they had, Steve Ballmer got up, he talked to you last week, right? So, you know, <laughs> they, he got up there in front of some sales companies, he said, you know these guys, Palm, they put a big circle around, like the target, you know? Just, we're going to kill these guys, we're going to kill these guys, you know? So I started getting these condolence notices. I mean, literally, people said, so, I'm sorry, Jeff, you know? What are you going to do? And, like, and then Microsoft is creating this thing, what was it called? It was um, the, the Windows CE thing, I thought it was called. You know, but it was like, you know, PDAs for, oh, another great story. Um, they, they, go, they, they, they started using the word palm, and we sued them, and we got them to stop it. Anyway, anyway so, so we said, what are we going to do? And they started saying, it's all about the software. It's all about the software, because that's all they did, right? At that time, Microsoft just did software. And they were gonna have, we're going to have 25 licensees, and it's all the software, and these palm guys are dead, right? Because all they're doing is hardware. They're just one vendor of hardware. And, and we were having pressure, by the way, from, um, from other people to, um, uh, to like, basically give in to Microsoft. And I said, no way. I said, we can, we can compete. I said, what we have to do is we have to do what Microsoft can't do. I said, Microsoft can't build a beautiful product. Right? <laughs> they don't build products. They build software. And that's not even very beautiful. But they don't build the product. They got these Taiwanese guys building the product. I said, so we're going to build a beautiful product. And that was the genesis of the Palm 5. I said, that's the most important thing. Now, it was interesting. So we, what we did at that time is we, we could afford to spend some money on them. And not that IDEO is too expensive, but, but they're a high-class shop. And uh, so we said, we're going to engage IDEO. And I'd worked with some of the principals earlier at Grid in a company called Matrix Design, which was then folded into IDEO. So I knew about them. And I ended up working with Dennis Boyle and a team there uh, doing the Palm 5. And it was a great product. It was beautiful. It was super successful. Now, I'll tell you an interesting story about this. 
when we were, when we were designing the Palm 5, really one of the most successful consumer products of all time, um, there was a lot of pressure to put new features in the software. Uh, because Microsoft was piling on all these features which really weren't important, but they were piling all these features. And, and, we, and I said, look, if we put a lot of new features in the software, then people will not pay attention to the industrial design. They'll have the, the reviewers will say, Palm introduces four new features, Microsoft introduces 45 new features. We lose. So I said, if we have no new software features, they can't write that story. All they can write is, Palm introduces beautiful product, Microsoft products still look awful. Right? <laughs> and, and that's what happened. So I had to fight this huge battle internally. Because, oh, they went, oh we can't not do this. I said, look, trust me on this one. We're just going to focus on the beauty of the design. That's the whole thing. You know, it was, it, it was elegant all around, not just the, the physical beauty, but the, the way it worked and so on. And, um, and, we, and we just focused on that, and, um, and that's what we did. And it turned out we just, we just blew them out of the water. They were, we were 10% market share went down 5% Microsoft. It was a very, very successful strategy. Um, and uh, anyway, so we started working with IDEO, and occasionally we would work with them, depending on the product, because they're really good at certain things. But you know, if you're doing a quick turn of a product and, and something like that, then you don't, really need to, you don't really need to use them. But they were great for bringing in totally new ideas. And that, by the way, the Palm 5 was the first product ever to have a lithium-ion battery in it. Um, it wasn't removable either, and no one was comfortable doing that uh, because they, there's no one had done it before. And so everyone said, oh, we can't do this. We can't. Said, Why not? So, so we, we went and visited the battery manufacturers. We talked to them. They were uncomfortable, but they couldn't tell us why it wouldn't work. And um, then we did some tests. I did some tests at home. I said, I'll take a bet. It's going to work, meaning that it wouldn't burn up and it wouldn't die. And it was basically that the battery life would be suffice for the life of the product. And um, so that was the first time that was ever done. It was also that product had no screws in it. It was glued shut. And this was to make it look pretty. And there was no reason to open it up since you're not going to take the battery out. And, uh, and at the very last moment, the manufacturing guys got cold feet. And they said, oh my god, we can't glue it because ah, we can't glue it. That's too dangerous. You know? what, if, what if they leave it on the dashboard and it gets hot and then the glue melts and it opens up because these are thermoplastic glues. And so they were going to reset the, the launch of the product by about four months to redesign it with screws. And so this is where you know, your passion comes into play. right? So I go in there, and I, I said, what do you mean you're going to redesign the product? Four months? We can't afford four months. And so I said, tell me the problem. I, and, I, and I basically said, I went back to my childhood. I, and as, as a child, I worked on boats, and we had shops. And we, I, I practically lived in a shipyard. And I worked with glues a lot. I, I used to have 55-gallon drums of polyurethane foam in my kitchen. And <laughs> so, so I'm not joking. you know. So, I said, I said, I know glues. There's a glue that'll work here. Let's get 3M on the phone right, or, you know, right now. We're going to talk to the, the one person in the world who knows what glue to use here. We're going to get the right glue, and we're going to ship this thing. And he did. And it worked fine. It was never a problem with the glues. All right, I'll, I'll take one more comment with you. You've been patient. All right, but maybe, go ahead. I, I was just wondering, you talked about how you've tried to have other people act as CEO. And if, if one of your CEOs were in the room right now, and somebody asked both of you keys to success of your company, keys to entrepreneurial success, what would be the biggest difference between your answer and theirs? So the question is, working with a CEO, pairing with other business partners, if we had my, basically, I've only worked with really one, which is Donna Dabinsky, and now Ed Colligan a bit, so two people really, but mostly Donna. Um, what would be, if we, you asked me what was the keys to success, how would we answer it differently? Well. I don't think we would answer it differently. Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a very complimentary relationship with the, my, my business partners. Um, and, you know, the three of us ran Palm for many years, Ed, Don, and myself. And we had complementary skills. 
So I was the product guy. I was the person who could say the glue's going to work, you know, um, and uh, design things like that. Ed was the marketing guy. What's the message? You know, how do we present this to people? How do we do testing of the product? And Donna was the business person. Like, let's not spend all the money. Make sure we have some money left over to design the next product. And how do we build the company and so on? And so we had complementary skills, but what was also key is we knew each three, all three of us knew enough about the other person's area of domain to be able to comment constructively on it. So I know enough about all the aspects of running a business to talk about the finances, to talk about the manufacturing, to talk about the legal aspect. And, and Don and Ed know enough about products to challenge me when I say something. But you know, it's like Tina talks about T-shaped. I love that, T-shaped people. And, and when I first read it uh, in your book, I, it really resonated with me, which is meaning people, you have to have like a, you have to know a little bit about everything, and then you have to be really deep in something. So what worked for us is we were three T-shaped people, and our, our vertical lines were offset from one another. And I don't think we'd come up with different answers. Um, you know, there is, no, there is no formula for success. I'll leave this, this is my last comment. There is no formula for success. Basically, success is solving one problem after another. That's it. And the problems are always different. If they've been solved before, then, some, then, then you know the answer. But, but you're presented with a new problem, you know, online retailing, it's falling apart, and, you know, we shipped 100,000 units to the wrong people, what do we do? How do you respond to that? And, so, and now, you know, competition from Microsoft, how do I respond to that? So it's always about, you know, just how, you know, tackling these problems one another, and you just need a well-rounded team who can bounce these ideas off of one another and, and try to come up with a good solution. Uh, to it. And again, if you can come up with a better solution to the problems than your competitor, and you do that consistently, your company will never end success. All right, I'm going to end right there. So thank, thank you very much. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.